Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are joined today by Professor Matt Goodwin. Professor Goodwin, welcome. Thank you for joining us and please introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Matt Goodwin here. Um, just published a book called Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics, and I'm really keen to talk about it. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. And Steve, welcome. Thanks, Martin, and welcome, Matt. So should we kick off with the book then? Um, and so one thing was to congratulate you. So I understand you're second in the Sunday Times bestseller list this week. Yeah, that was um, a little bit unexpected. Um, but uh, but I guess I've, I suppose my reading of it is I think there's a lot of people out there who are looking for something a little bit different um, and maybe something that that's sort of challenging the the status quo a little bit. And that's certainly how I see the book. So, I mean, it's great news. I've, I've never... I've never got that high up the list, so it was um, it was a really great day on Sunday. Yeah, it struck it struck me that actually, and I don't know much about these kinds of things, but it must be quite unusual for a book about about politics. I don't know whether you characterise it that way, but to be so high up, I think that's true. Um, I think as well, you know, the way that I see this book is um, alongside a few others we've had recently, you might, your listeners might've come across Hannah Barnes's book on the Tavistock clinic and what, what was going wrong there. Nigel Bigger had a book called colonialism, which was kind of taking a more nuanced approach to British history and, and in particular, um, Britain's empire, both of those two really struggled to get published. And then they became, you know, really big bestsellers. And I think my book is, is somewhat similar in that, you know, I am taking aim at some of the established wisdom um and some of the kind of you know elite groups in british society and and holding a mirror up to those groups so i think people are really up for that conversation and that debate um and i think even though we've had a you know a decade of chaos in politics i still think ultimately you know non-fiction is doing really really well at the moment i think you know people are just they're, they're passionate about consuming ideas and evidence and figures and i think that's a great thing um and, you know, just the other thing to say is I started writing it during COVID when I wasn't sure if we were ever going to be out of the pandemic. Um, but I made the conscious decision to wait until after the pandemic to publish because I just felt that people would be able to to focus again on on politics and begin, you know, take a step back and look at what's happened in the country, which is ultimately what the book's about. So, no, it's it, it, it's good timing, I think. And that you mentioned holding a mirror up. Is that the reason you wanted to write it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this book um, really pulls no punches. It basically looks at who I call the new elite in British politics and society, um, a, a group of typically um, Oxbridge and Russell Group um, elite university graduates who tend to live in the big cities or the university towns who tend to um, often, not always, but tend to come from from families that are pretty well off. And um, culturally and politically, they tend to lean very strongly to the left. And essentially what I'm doing in the book is holding up this mirror and saying, well, you know, if we really want to build a, a better society and bring the country together again, I think we need to look at how this group has have really lost touch with the values that are held by many other people in the country, uh, how their voice dominates most of the institutions and how they're embracing a, a worldview or an ideology that is leading them to lead, leading them to see uh, some groups in society as being more virtuous or as morally more morally worthy than others. And 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 really, what I'm saying in this book is is in this new elite is is 
really out of step with where much of the country is at the moment. And it's more of a plea, if anything, to try and get them to think about how to get back in step with the country. And that's interesting because it, in part, I, I take it your book is descriptive about how you see politics and, and culture in the country at the moment. But it, is it fair also to say there's some as a critique of the new elite in there as well? Oh, it's very critical. Yeah. I mean, it's descriptive in the sense that I'm drawing on sort of survey data to paint a picture of who who these people are. But it's also, um, you know, it, it it is presenting an argument. And, and, and the argument essentially is if you look at British politics over the last half century, you know, we have had a, a political cultural revolution that has pushed really three things that I argue have have alienated many voters. One is a new economic model of hyper-globalization, which has served London pretty well, served the graduate class pretty well, but left a lot of other people behind. Uh, that was accompanied by a new model of mass immigration from the mid-2000s onwards, which you know the elite graduate class were really happy about that, but many other people felt that it just went too far and too fast. And then lastly, the hollowing out of national democratic institutions, whether because of our membership of the European Union, whatever your view of the EU, whether you support it, whether you oppose it, you know, it does have some pretty enormous implications for national democracy uh, and, and a political system which wasn't really giving voice to, to many voters in society. So this this what I call this revolution, which sort of began with with the Thatcher era and then went through New Labour. I think really set the stage for everything that happened in the last decade, the rise of populism, the vote for Brexit, um, and then the the post-Brexit realignment with with Boris Johnson. And, you know, at the at the centre of much of that, you know, is this group, the sort of the new elite who who essentially, you know, benefited from a lot of that. I mean, they reap the gains of a lot of that and and have rewired um politics, culture. The creative industries, media to to reflect their values and to magnify their voice in the country. And um, I wrote the book because I'm worried about the extent to which you know they're reflecting on that. And also, secondly, out of my desire to avoid re replicating the mistakes of the last ten years, where we we saw many voters just give up on the mainstream parties altogether and and flock to populism. And I don't particularly want to see that again. So. Yeah, the book is going to irritate a lot of people in that group. It already is, as you'll see on Twitter and social media. It's no irony that it is members of the new elite who are kind of shouting the loudest about this book. Um, but uh, but I think it's cut through, and I think people want, are up for having the discussion and the debate, which is which is great. So t to tell us a bit about the reception on social media, because I, I noticed one or two back and forwards on Twitter, um, including with uh, Alistair Campbell, and I saw something about Torquay and Arsenal. So how how did all that come come together, and what's your, what's your take <laughs> on that? Well, my take is that members of the new elite who, you know, I'm describing in this book, who I'm saying are quite adrift from the country, who are quite self-interested, some might say narcissistic, are quite intolerant of people who hold different beliefs and views, I think Alistair Campbell's a pretty good example of who I'm talking about. And um, you know, we um we approached we approached him to suggest having a discussion. He then decided he wanted to not do that, which is absolutely fine, but then decided to criticize the book and refuse to have a discussion about it. And and I sort of implied that, you know, I guess he was Manchester United and I was Torquay United and um the book then went number two in the national bestseller list. And I look forward to seeing if his book emulates that. But I mean, I think, 
underlying all of this is 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 a is a serious point which is you know we have to be able to have a debate and a discussion about these topics and we have to be able to do that with many of the people that I'm talking about in the book you know people who do have a very specific view of the world who are you know broadly radically progressive in how they see the country and 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 the kinds of things they want to bring about in the country and I'm arguing that I think on many issues they're out of step and I think that's why you know, we we come to this place that we're in politically. So it would have been great if, you know, either Alistair Campbell or James O'Brien or anyone within that sort of loose camp would have opened up and had a discussion with me about the book. I don't think they can argue that, you know, I'm too insignificant. I think, you know, my presence on social media and in the media is pretty significant. So I, I can only be left with a conclusion that they're just ducking the debate. Yeah, it is. It is. From someone looking on the outside, it is a, an area people seem to get quite heated quite quickly, almost almost uh, to a surprising extent. But I think you've described why perhaps that's happened. Um, final thing, so I'm going to pass over to Martin in a minute, who I know really wants to get into some of the details, the ideas about this book and other things you've written in the past. But just finally, in the process of writing it, did anything surprise you? Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, writing it during the year of three prime ministers was a complete and utter nightmare. Um, so, so as I came to the end of the project, basically having having written quite a bit of it, assuming that you know Boris Johnson would probably stay the course, um, to then be followed with the Liz Truss experiment, uh, and to then have that replaced by Rishi Sunak, that was certainly a surprise and made the final months a bit complicated. Um, but also, I, to be honest with you, I've been surprised by the reaction. I mean, it's the thing about this book, unlike anything I've written previously, is it is really it's really polarized the debate. Like you either love it or you really have some issues with it. So um, I didn't I didn't sit down to write it that way. I, 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 you know, I thought I could carry I might be able to carry people with me. But um, what surprised me is I've underestimated how intense and to be honest, how vicious uh, some of the backlash has been in some quarters, and ironically, among many people who claim to be the most liberal and the, the most enlightened of all. Um, so that's been a little bit unfortunate. Well, perfect. So we've had a polarised debate. This brings us to no man's land so we can find some middle ground between all of these, perhaps. So I know about your work through initially UKIP, um, the fantastic book Revolt on the Right. I've read your um, your previous book to this one about populism. So can you, sorry, national, about national populism. So can you put this book in sort of that context and what's taken you on that kind of, I suppose, academic and uh, I suppose broader journey from writing about UKIP to, to writing about this book now and putting the ideas and the areas you cover in that context? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, obviously, I've started in my career as doing mainly academic research, um, looking at public opinion, voting, elections, and mainly published in, in the academic journals. Um, the first book that really cut through um, was Revolt on the Right in 2014, which basically said, look, unless we start to do something differently, this this kind of rebellion that we can see brewing through the UK Independence Party is going to turn into something much bigger. Uh, and that bigger thing then arrived, obviously, with with the vote for Brexit in 2016. And I wrote another book on on that with Cambridge University Press, which was a sort of very, you know, academic 
data rich book on why people voted for Brexit. And then as I was doing that, you know, there's all this other stuff kicking off around the world. You had Donald Trump, you had Marine Le Pen, you had uh, the alternative for Germany. And so then I thought, well, look, globally, there's a there's a story here. There's something that needs to be explained. There's a lot of research and evidence that needs to be pulled together. And that led to the book National Populism. Um, and then I was thinking in the aftermath of the 2019 general election, when we had, you know, the big sort of beginnings, I would argue, of this realignment in in Brexit Britain, you know, I thought, well, I better do a book on that. And of course, COVID hit in early 2020, which made that a little bit complicated. And as I was going through that process and just really reflecting on um, what's happened in Britain over the last decade, particularly how members of this specific group, I would argue, have moved so far to the left on cultural questions that they've not really absorbed the lessons of the last decade. Um, this book really became more of a I suppose a trade book, you might say, more of um, a polemic in parts. It's certainly much more accessible than some of the other books I've written. It's much more argumentative um, because I think you do get to a point in life where you do think, you you know, you have things that you want to say. Um, you have things that you want to, that you, you, you know, in my case, at least, I think the evidence supports me and 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 I do want to, I do want to provoke a debate and a discussion because I think, on many of these points, there are very few people out there doing that, and um, and and so I guess this book probably takes me further into the public realm and more more outside of the university realm, and and that's that's just a personal journey that I've been on. As I've uh, so I haven't actually uh, read the book, which I think is is out now. Correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, or if not, came it out is last out Thursday. Soon. Yeah, perfect. So. Um, but some of the pieces that you've written in the um, in the press, in the Times, in the Guardian, some of the things that you've talked about, I wanted to talk about one what you want would like to see or propose, sort of done to address the issues, and some of the um, things that I've been reading from what you've said. You reference Michael Sandel, and you also seem to be talking in some sort of way similar to Morris Glassman in his Blue Labour um, book. So how much of an influence have those been, their ideas, any others that you'd like to sort of cite um, as part of a sort of broader context or movement? You've touched on a couple already, but I'm interested in that sort of where you sit within that context. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I was surprised by the reaction is because, to be honest with you, uh, Martin, I, I feel like... Many of the things I'm saying in this book actually, in a way, have been said before. Um, I was expecting one of the criticisms to be, well, you know, hasn't uh, haven't we discussed these points before? Um, and I think you can see them in works by people like Christopher Lash, uh, who wrote Revolt of the Elites, which is a great, great book, really influential on me. Daniel Bell, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. That's a really good book. Um David Goodhart, The Road to Somewhere, Michael Sandel, The Tyranny of Merit, David Brooks, Bobo's Lost in Paradise, um, a series of books that Michael Lynn, The New Class War, um, that basically point at the professional managerial classes and the way in which they have come adrift from, from the rest of society. And, you know, to me, at least, um, that point is, you know, empirically um, 
very, very easy to show. It's very visible. It's not really a source of dispute within the universities unless people are projecting their own politics onto this debate. And I think that's unfortunately what we've had a lot of since the book's released. I mean, a lot of the criticism over the last week has not really been directed at the argument because I think the argument's pretty sound. The the criticism has mainly been directed at me personally. And I, I have very little time for that. I, I just think, you know, we, we play the ball. We don't, we don't play the man or woman, you know, and I think that's an unfortunate development, but so the lineage is, you know, writers who are, you know, the people I've mentioned are either disgruntled social Democrats, radical socialists, you know, one or two conservatives for sure. Roger Scruton definitely has influenced my thinking. Um, obviously Edmund Burke and a few others, but um, but but I I draw on both the left and right. I wouldn't say I'm I'm speaking exclusively from one from one one side or to one side. Can I put some of the criticism that I've seen aimed at you to you and get your reaction? So one mm. particular piece was in the New Statesman by and uh, we get the uh, Oliver Eagleton. I don't know if you saw it, and and in one line he says that your work has become part of the the right populist movement that you started out seeking to explain or analyze. What yeah. is your reaction to that kind of line of argument against you? Which I, which I accept, I think, is as you say, a sort of um, somewhat playing the man on the ball. But how do you react to when people say that kind of thing? Well, I mean, on the on the on on the surface, I think it's ridiculous. Um, but 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 politically, I understand where they're coming from. I mean, my view of my view of parts of the left is that they're so unable to have a frank and serious and rigorous discussion about these issues that I'm talking about that they either try and shut them down or they try and discredit the people who are trying to have that discussion and that debate. So, you know, Oliver Eagleton, um, you know, I don't really need to explain too much to the audience about, you know, his father and his personal politics and the new statesman. And, you know, I used to read it a lot. I ended up losing a lot of support for it after the the treatment of Roger Scruton when they tried to cancel him. And I, I just... I think underlying this is a is a broader point. I I do genuinely think, with the exception of some people, one of whom Martin mentioned, um, Morris Glasman, I I I simply don't think there are many interesting ideas or thinkers on the left anymore. I, I really I really genuinely think that. I think if you look at global politics, um, many of the significant ideas. I'm not saying ideas I necessarily support, but many of the significant ideas, I think, are now coming from from the centre right, um, and uh, you know where there should have been an interesting, serious discussion about some of the points I raise in the book. You know why are there so few working class people in politics? Why is the media so dominated by one particular group? Why are the creative industries so lopsided? You know why are so many people feeling so anxious still after Brexit about issues like immigration and the borders? How can we resolve all of that? Where those interesting discussions should be. There are all these kind of like slightly idiotic, childish, personal attacks, which, to be frank, I wouldn't really associate with a serious magazine or what was a serious magazine like the New Statesman. It just, you know, it was just a I didn't really think anything of it. I just it added to this sort of general sense that I have now of certain people and strands on the left that I just think have become a little bit sad, a little bit lost. Um, and don't seem to be contributing all that much intellectually. 
and for, for perhaps listeners that don't follow it as closely, why do you think these segments of the left don't want to engage with the substance? It, tell me if this is wrong, but it seems that the critique is, of them is partly they just don't get it or they don't get how they're out of touch with large parts of the population on, um, on social issues. Um, what, yeah. what, what's holding them back from engaging substantively? Well, I just don't think they've got the um, bandwidth to go there. I think there's a very fixed view of the world on the left that's about the evil Tory elite and the capitalists and anything else outside of the debate over economic struggle and redistribution is essentially cultural war politics that is being stoked up by right-wing warriors and is not worthy of discussion or, or, or serious reflection. I think that is essentially the standard kind of line. And... Um, the there's a sort of dogma that comes with that or a kind of religious quality to that which which leaves many people unable to get into some of the discussions that i really do think we need to have as a as a country as a society you know when it comes to things like the overall levels of migration in the country the lack of integration in some communities the impact of globalization on the country um you know the the importance that voters place on family on tradition on national identity uh, the left is just terrible at talking about these issues and these debates because it tends to or at least a strand on the left tends to say well this is either racism or it's rupert murdoch or it's uh xenophobia and essentially needs to be shut down and i've seen that again with this book i mean essentially you know, rather than have a discussion about these issues, the the instinctive response is to try and shut down the conversation. And and that's one of the characteristics of the new elite that I talk about in the book, that, that they are more likely to unfriend, uh, block people on social media who express views they disagree with. They're the most likely to say they feel uncomfortable if one of their children were to marry a conservative or a Brexiteer, they're the most likely to only socialize with their own group. They tend to live in areas that are surrounded by people who look like them. They tend to marry other members of the elite graduate class, and they tend to only um, uh, interact online with people from their group. So, you know, this, there is a sort of a, a research base to this, which, you know, I, I, which is reflected in the reaction to this book. And, um, I think if you look at global politics, I mean, that that's why I think the left has been struggling so much generally over the last 20 years or so, because I think many of its traditional voters, workers, um, non-graduates, pensioners have gradually been moving from left to right. And you can see that in, in um, many democracies around the world. Populism has not gone anywhere. France, Hungary, Sweden, Italy, the US. I mean, we've still got serious levels of support for that movement and i think it's something that's probably going to stay with us because mainstream parties are still refusing to either take these issues seriously or to even have a discussion about them so that seems quite a good point to move on to party politics now you've talked before and you've talked since we've uh we've spoke today about a realignment in politics so can you just explain what that means for anyone who might not have come across the term before and your thoughts on it and what it means yeah so i think you know a political realignment is is something that we saw after the brexit referendum where you see 
a, a particular party like the Conservatives suddenly doing well in new areas of the country like the Red Wall, among new new types of voters like like working class voters, uh, voters that they don't usually attract. So a realignment in my mind refers to a change in the dominant political faction in a country and which tends to lead to long lasting uh, a long lasting transformation of politics. So Margaret Thatcher would be an example. Thatcher led the 1980s realignment of British politics. Ronald Reagan in America. Tony Blair to some extent did as well from 97 to 2010. So um, you know, realignments happen on the left and the right. And my argument certainly is that ever since um, really the 2010s, we've been in this situation where we've had a very right um, realignment in Britain, lots of people wanting to change politics, wanting to push through something different. Um, the Conservatives for a while seem to seem to tap into that. But then but then gradually, as we saw with Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss, they lost touch with that realignment. And so we're in this, I guess, interregnum. You know, we're, we're, we're in a break. We're not sure what's coming next. All we know is that lots of voters out there aren't happy with the status quo. Perfect opportunity for me to ask my next question then. One of the reasons I wanted to invite you on was because in talking about and promoting your book, you mentioned a phrase that we probably haven't actually talked about in this podcast originally, but it's kind of the reason for us existing, which is about the politically homeless. So who are politically homeless these days? Well, I think there are politically homeless voters on both the left and the right. But the, the, the voters that I'm mainly talking about in this book are voters who are traditionalist in their outlook. They are sceptical of the effects of globalisation. They are very ang angry and anxious about the um, scale and the speed of uh, demographic change in the country, things like migration and, and the pace at which that's upended communities. They don't feel at home in either the Labour Party or the Conservatives. They may typically lean a little bit left on the economy, a little bit right on culture, um, so they don't fit neatly into either the left or the right. They probably live outside of London and the university towns, but not always. And they're probably looking not just at politics, but many of the institutions, the media, the creative industries, the cultural institutions, and probably thinking that that national conversation doesn't really reflect people like them and doesn't represent people like them. And that's really what the book is about, is saying that, you know, there are millions of people like that in the country who really genuinely feel homeless. I mean, they they they. They feel homeless politically, but they also feel homeless culturally, that the worldview that is being being back to them through the institutions is not a worldview they either recognise um, or, or particularly like. And I think, you know, those are the voters that I'm really referring to. So I'd like to come back to talk about the Conservative and Labour parties in a moment. But So in terms of those who are politically homeless, how much are people who might hold those values. And we've we've talked a bit today and in previous podcasts about the sort of left on economics, right on culture, and that sort of uh, change and realignment. Do you think a lot of these people are kind of, when they get to a ballot box, making do? I mean, there's been talk about, like, turnout rates and disengagements. That's kind of fluctuated up and down. So what are these people doing? Are they 
turning off from politic, party politics completely? Are they kind of making the best of it, making a kind of pragmatic decision? You know, were they inspired by Boris Johnson? And now, um, as we talked about in the most recent uh, previous pod, sort of then feeling bro- broken promises and let down. So what are they actually doing with their sort of engagement in politics, if any? Well, if you look at Boris Johnson's voters, for example, about a third are now saying they're undecided or they're not sure who who to vote for at the next election. Um, and about one in 10 have switched over to the Reform Party. Rishi Sunak is slowly winning those voters back, um, slowly but surely. And, um, uh, you know, but having said that, there's still a great degree of disillusionment. And I think, you know, that's partly about the 2019 manifesto and what many people felt, you know, was going to change hasn't changed. I mean, you know, there's a growing sense in the country Brexit was not managed very well. Uh, there's a very strong sense immigration is still too high and is not being managed well. There's a growing sense of anxiety over the loss of control over the borders, which kind of blows apart the idea that uh, Britain was taking back control after leaving the European Union. And there's, I think, a growing sense that levelling up and the regional redistribution has not really materialised. It's not turned into a serious policy. And all of that was before we got to the cost of living crisis before we got to the energy crisis um, and before we've got to, you know, the, the sharpest downturn in living standards since the 1950s. So the big risk, I think, facing British politics at the next election actually is not a kind of resurgence of populism, but is actually apathy. I genuinely think, Martin, that, you know, there are going to be lots of voters, working class, non-graduate, um, older voters who who may end up just not voting at all. Um, and it would be interesting to compare the rates of turnout, you know, in 2017 and 2019, which were two pretty good general elections from a, from a turnout story, um, and look at where we are in, in, you know, late 2024. I mean, if you believe the rumours this week, we're looking at a November 24 election. So that will make things really, really interesting. Um, but I, I think apathy may end up being the real winner. No, no disagreement about apathy being a key problem because it's come up quite a few times on this podcast. I wanted just to challenge a little bit what you said about um, views on immigration because I've heard from lots of quarters that actually the British public are now uh, much less concerned about migration than they were, let's say, in the twenty sort of fifteen times. So you said that concern's still there. How, how does that? How do you square that circle? Well, it's certainly true that the Brits have overall become a bit more positive about migration, but both the scale and speed of that change, I would argue, uh, Steve, is routinely exaggerated by many of the people who would like that change to be true. Uh, The the, the reality today is only a very small minority of people want immigration to increase. About 54, 55% say they want it to, to decline. Um, they, they want it to fall and the rest say, you know, keep it as it is. Um, if you ask people, was immigration too high or too low over the last 10 years, they say too high. If you ask them, um, you know, what would they prefer to do in the future? They say reduce net migration to about 100,000, not not 504,000 where it is currently. So, you know, you put all of this together um, and I think basically what you've got is um is a section of the electorate becoming much more positive tends to be the new elite tends to be university graduates in the cities and you've also still got very high levels of concern elsewhere in other groups about the pace and scale of the change and the reality is 
and pollsters can't answer this because we don't know where we're going. It's going to take a few years. But my bet is this. The reality is the vast majority of voters haven't yet figured out what's happened to the immigration system. And I think when they realize actually just the extent to which it's been liberalized, the extent to which we're going to be running, you know, net migration levels of at least at least 400,000, if not higher for the rest of the decade, I think people are going to be I think people are going to become very concerned about that. I think they're going to say, well, how can we solve a housing crisis? How can we solve an NHS crisis? How can we solve, you know, all of the problems that we've got at the moment with public services and overcrowded schools while also dealing with this issue? And I think that's going to come back with a vengeance. I really genuinely think we are not out of the woods yet on that issue, largely because we haven't delivered what many people thought was going to be delivered through the referendum and the, its aftermath, which was lower overall migration. That 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 story does make sense. I do think some people are perhaps a little complacent on the issue. One other thing I wanted to ask is, again, on migration. So is it about competence or is it about culture? Because sometimes, or some analysis that I've seen was saying, people just don't trust that, that the government, that politicians can control it in a sensible way and run, you know, housing public service respite and some people say no no this is actually about cultural change it which of it is is it or is it both how does that fit together yeah i don't think it's either or i mean i'm very i'm very skeptical of the economics versus culture framing i mean there are studies that show that people who feel culturally unsettled are therefore more likely to to say it's economics because it's a more it's a more it's considered a more legitimate, justifiable concern. And I've seen work that has shown that people who are economically left behind are more likely to feel culturally threatened. So I think the interaction is there and it's between the two. But also, you know, when we did the work on revolt and we were looking at pointing at seats like like Thurrock and Boston and Skegness and Clacton, you know, a lot of that wasn't only about the perceived effects of migration. I think it was also that Migration became a proxy for this notion that nobody was really listening to what people wanted and that it was also tapping into this issue that I talk about in the new book about voice and, and the extent to which people feel that they have a voice in the conversation, which is both considered legitimate and listened to. And I think for many voters, you know, they they feel that um, they're the voice that is prioritised in Westminster or the voice that is prioritised on the BBC or wherever tends to be the voice of the new elite. And that, that if you are sceptical of the orthodoxy, if you are sceptical of, I don't know, um, gender identity or, um, you know, the way in which British history is often presented in mainly negative ways or you're sceptical about migration or you're sceptical about wrapping everything around the flag of diversity i mean there are very few places for you to have that discussion i mean you might say the daily mail perhaps the spectator um you know some sections of the media certainly but but when seen as a whole you know when we consider the institutions as a whole i think many voters feel that it's very imbalanced and i i suspect that's why we've got you know falling levels of trust in media i think it's probably why we've got high levels of skepticism about our political class you know a big notion a big idea now which taps into your podcast that if you look at Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak there's actually very little to tell them apart now I mean if you look at every major policy area you know they're 
they are basically almost saying the same thing, right? On Brexit, on housing, energy, the economy, there are a few differences here and there, the NHS, some little bits that are different here and there. But basically, you know, we've got a big consensus. I mean, that would be my argument, at least. And I, you know, whenever you get a big consensus between left and right, you usually get apathetic voters and you usually get some challenges on the left and the right who try to break that consensus up. So I think we're in a really interesting time in British politics. I, I'm not necessarily saying it's going to fall off a cliff, but I am saying that I think, you know, we've failed to resolve the the divides that opened up over the last decade. Well, that seems a, a really good time to wrap up this particular section and just talk about the um, the parties. So you wrote recently about the challenges facing Labour in terms of values, voice and virtue. But shall we talk, because you've sort of brought up the issue of kind of similarity and consensus, how well both sides, Labour Party and Conservatives, are doing in terms of voice, values and virtue and representing sort of different groups uh, within the, the country and voters in general? Um, well, when I talk about values, I talk about the way in which essentially... Um, people who are tending to dominate parliament, civil service, media, creative industries tend to, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but I'm just saying they tend to advocate values that are, you know, essentially socially liberal, if not radically progressive, that value autonomy, creativity, difference, individual rights, um, are less wedded to group identities, to group loyalties, to the nation, to national identity. And sometimes view those things as a bit, you know, silly or maybe they feel a bit embarrassed by them. But, you know, those are the values of a minority. Most people don't really think that way. And so on these issues that I point to, you know, Europe was one, how we think about Britishness, that would be another example. You know, many people are very you know, proud of Britain's distinctive history, its identity, but but many people in the new elite really do want to reframe Britishness around the celebration of diversity um, or the celebration of international themes like, you know, um, fairness and tolerance. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're saying that a nation is defined by being welcoming to others, it's also like saying a nation doesn't have an identity of its own. Um, and, it, and, and I think many voters don't, you know, they don't feel that way. They they want to, you know, preserve and promote the things that they think are distinctive. And you can also see these differences on issues like diversity, whether people feel that change has gone too far, whether it should be slowed down. Uh, you know, they sometimes often feel that society is no longer as stable as it once was, as ordered as it once was. And um, certainly there have always been voters who have felt that way. But I think today... You know, when we look at the sheer pace of change and the scale of change in a short period of time, I think many voters are saying, look, just, you know, slow down for a bit. Um, so on values, there are some pretty clear divides. And when I talk about voice, I really say, well, look, one way of trying to sort this problem out is to make sure that our institutions, our politics, BBC, advertising, publishing, the arts, films um, are more representative of voices in places like Thurrock, I mean, or Boston and Skegness, or Stoke-on-Trent, or Wales, or, you know, regional media. One of the things I've found remarkable this week is one national journalist after another lining up to say the media doesn't have a problem. Well, 
you know, I'm afraid lots of people don't see it that way. You know, that, that hollowing out of local media, the collapse of regional media, I think that's really damaged national media. It's, it's cut it off from public opinion, from what people are, are thinking. It's cut it off from local communities. The reason we've got all of these new insurgent media groups like Talk TV and GB News and so on is because I think the national media has failed to to, to do its job, to be blunt. Uh, and that that's why I talk about this notion of voice. You look at the House of Commons. We've never had as many university graduates in the House of Commons, and half of them have, have, have gone to Oxbridge. We've never had as many political careerists, people who have only ever worked in politics. We've never had as few working class voices or trade unionists in um in uh in in parliament the civil service has never been as elitist as it is today which believe me is true if you look at the evidence compared to the 1980s the civil service is actually in many ways more elitist than it was back then and so you know this notion of voice i think is really palpable that people and you know people feel not only that they're not in this conversation but they feel that if they say the wrong thing they're likely to be you know cancelled or stigmatized or harassed or made to feel socially unacceptable. And so I think the way in which the the contours of the national conversation have also narrowed in recent years, and you've seen this in public concerns over political correctness, a real a palpable sense in the polling, you know, 60% of people feel that they can't really say what they think anymore because of this climate that we seem to have, I think taps into that. And just lastly, this notion of virtue is the sense that by embracing this ideology of radical progressivism or what's sometimes called identity politics or woke politics. I think what we can see is, and what I'm worried about, is the arrival of a new uh, a new way of, of distributing status in society, that if you're part of the elite graduate class, if you're part of a racial, sexual, uh, gender minority, um, you know, you are increasingly a high status group in society. You are seen as either being um, victimized in some way and in our new cultural victimhood that's a that's a high status uh identity whereas if you are you know um white male straight um conservative brexiteer non-graduate um maybe went to a less prestigious university in this new ladder of status you you are considered low status if you don't express the, the right beliefs if you don't say the right things if you don't align yourself with the, the, the right orthodoxy, you are considered to be low status. And we've seen this in the aftermath of the Brexit referendum, when one um, Oxbridge graduate after another lined up to deride uh, half of the country as ignorant, bigots, racist, gammons and Karens. And, you know, people say, well, maybe you take things too far. I mean, I lived through that. I mean, I watched it for three or four years, much of the elite talking as if the rest of the country couldn't hear them. Um, except they were talking out loud. And I think that prejudice that was directed towards half the country would never be directed towards any other group in society. There would have been outrage. But somehow, for those groups, it's considered acceptable among the new graduate elite. And I personally think that was a real low moment in British politics. I think it was a real low moment in British society. So this notion of virtue, this notion of who is morally worthy and who is not in society, who who thinks they're morally righteous and who who is considered to be a morally inferior underclass, I actually think is is, is becoming a really 
palpable, potent fault line in our politics. And many voters have picked up on it. You know, voters are feeling, as Michael Sandel calls it, the politics of humiliation. I think lots of voters are feeling this sense that they are not part of this socially acceptable high status community. And I'm worried about the political implications of that. So I'm conscious of time. So there's just a couple of areas that I wanted to uh, to come on to before we close. And one I feel like might be related to what we've just talked about. So you're a commissioner at the Social Mobility Commission. And for the interest of sort of full disclosure, I uh, until recently worked at the Social Mobility Foundation. So have a, an interest in that area and view obviously views on it. But I'd really like you to tell us sort of why you are at that uh, a commissioner at the commission and your views on sort of social mobility you've already touched on sort of Michael Sandel but I'd really like you to to kind of explore that and tell us about it and if you want to tell us a personal journey you're very welcome to or otherwise why it's important to you yeah I mean well I'm glad to hear you've worked at the uh, social mobility foundation I think it's an important it's an important institute I think the I think basically um I was I was interested in the issue partly because of what Catherine Burble Singh was doing at uh, at her school, and I went to visit the school. I was incredibly impressed by it, but also I think having having gone through a journey of being first person in my family to go to university to um, essentially then become an academic, I've always been more interested in social mobility among should we say left behind or disadvantaged groups and how we can try and how we can try and improve that. And I think, you know, the story around social mobility is usually a story that is told in a very narrow, quite restrictive way. And I'm very interested in trying to approach social mobility from a more holistic way. So not simply, um, you know, being quite gloomy about the structures that exist in society, but actually thinking or trying to think a bit more innovatively about how we can encourage people to maximize their own potential, take responsibility for their own lives, how we can perhaps paint a different picture of social mobility. It isn't all doom and gloom. There's lots of incredible stuff happening in in British society, including among minority children who are often outperforming their white counterparts in almost every section of the education system at the moment. And I think learning from those experiences and trying to figure out why we've got this enormous variation among different groups who, you know, are coming from the same similar communities, but in very different family environments with very different sets of values, with very different expectations and ambitions. Uh, I wanted to try and get into some of that. And, and, you know, I think the Social Mobility Commission with the people who are on it, many of whom are working in, you know, technical colleges, vocational uh, institutes. Um, you know, I do personally think we sent far too many people into university. I've said that before. I think that's a pretty, you know, um, standard thing, um, accepted point now that we haven't got it right with higher education. We haven't invested anywhere near as heavily enough in technical education and apprenticeships, vocational training. Um, you know, we've massively overexpanded the universities, and I'm saying that as a university professor. Um, I think we we need to completely revisit actually higher education and what it's doing and the what it whether whether it's making an impact as much of an impact as it could be, whether we need to start really reforming 
that in a bigger way. Um, um, so so I, I wanted to get involved because I felt that the conversation was starting to change in a positive way. And um, these things move in cycles, right? I mean, you know, the SMC will last for a few years and then it will be replaced or they'll have an, a new set of commissioners who might come from from another perspective. But 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 that's why I wanted to get involved and also believing that, you know, to be frank, academics should be out there in the real world, not stuck in the library. So as we as we pull to a close, um, and in the interest of this podcast being no man's land and trying to find common ground, I, I want to ask you, with the, the you know, key theme of your book, The New Elite, um, is there anything you accept in that narrative that is that they've got right? You know, for example, um, now I for one would accept that uh, that you know racial minorities have been disadvantaged over the years, and it's good that that's being focused on, or that um, uh, trans people do have a very hard time and in lots of, lots of different ways, and uh, deserve strengthened rights and things like that. Would you, would you accept at least some of that narrative, even if you think in some ways it's been damaging? Oh, I'm not for a second saying, you know, things are rosy and, you know, we don't have issues around prejudice and intolerance. But but I am saying that I think on balance, things are going a lot better in British society than many people would have us believe. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to give us uh, your evening. I think that's been a really fascinating discussion, covered a lot of ground there. Um, so thank you for your time. Please do uh, give one final plug to your book. Thank you, Martin. Um, values, voice and virtue, the new British politics. And I'd love to carry on the discussion on social media. And if, if you want to you know, connect with me, please do so. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Steve, as always, thank you very much. Thank you, Martin. And thanks again, Matt. Thanks, Steve. Cheers. Appreciate it. And this has been the No Man's Lab podcast. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.